1923, Rudolf Pitner wrote in his book, a good intelligence test must avoid anything that is commonly learned. And he goes on to say this rests on the differentiation between intelligence and knowledge. And I like to remind people that a good intelligence test must measure thinking in a way that's not confounded by knowing. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before we introduce this episode's guests, I want to take a moment to remind you that the interview you're about to hear is just one part of our exploration of this topic, and it is an interesting one. You'll find multimedia resources, including a transcript of this episode, accompanying blog posts, videos, collaboration opportunities, and much more, all on our learning community. Visit bit.ly slash getmlresources for more information or just go to Elevation Education and click on the Community tab. Our resources are always free and available when you need them. Just use the search bar or filters to find the resources that you are looking for. On this episode of Highest Aspirations, we come back to a topic we covered earlier in the season, identifying gifted and talented English learners. And in this particular episode, we talk specifically about intelligence tests and the problems that they pose for many multilingual learners. Some of the questions we address in this episode are, what are some of the biggest obstacles for multilingual learners in many widely used intelligence tests? How can assessments be altered to more accurately test thinking rather than language skills or content knowledge? And as more students are identified as gifted and talented with more accurate testing, how can teachers begin to better support these students? We discuss these questions and much more with our guest, Dr. Jack Neglieri. Dr. Neglieri has held faculty appointments at Northern Arizona University, The Ohio State University, and George Mason University. He is currently a senior research scientist at the DeVros Center for Resilient Children and Emeritus Professor of Psychology at George Mason University. Dr. Naglieri has developed many tests used by psychologists and educators, such as the Naglieri Nonverbal Ability Test, the Cognitive Assessment System, Autism Spectrum Function Inventory, and forthcoming Naglieri General Ability Tests, verbal, nonverbal, and quantitative. He is widely known for his efforts to increase participation of traditionally underrepresented students in gifted education. He is also well known for the PASS theory of intelligence and its application using the CS2 for identification of specific learning disabilities using the discrepancy consistency method, fair and equitable assessment of diverse populations, and academic interventions related to PASS neurocognitive processes. As you hear in our conversation, Dr. Jack Neglieri is passionate about ensuring that multilingual learners and other traditionally marginalized student groups have access to fair and equitable tests so that they can be represented in gifted and talented programs. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Lots of times when I do webinars, I help people understand that in our world that's always so busy, best way to get ready to learn and to think about new things is to take a mindful moment. And just to kind of set the stage and just take literally a minute just to do, you know, some slow breathing. And I'll play a song that I wrote, which I have named Serenity, just to kind of get us in the mood 
to be mindful and ready to learn. I also feel ready to learn. Dr. Jack Naglieri, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and uh, I learned about your work when I was kind of researching this, this uh, topic, gifted and talented, especially among English learners. And we have kind of a nice representation of people talking about this, but really, really glad to get your perspective. And I, I want to start by framing the conversation um, around one of the problems that you've set out to solve, and that is identifying, which is the first step, obviously, gifted and talented students fairly and equitably. Um, tell us how you became interested in, in fair assessment of intelligence. This is really a great question and really gets to uh, the why I do what I do. And um, it actually started in 1975 when I was a new school psychologist working uh, in Bethpage, Long Island, and I was doing what I was taught to do, give a whisk, give an achievement test, and a couple of other things. And I noticed that the questions on the intelligence test were virtually identical to the questions on the achievement test. And I remember thinking, that's kind of weird. I was only 25 just starting out in the field. So I didn't really understand the, you know, the implications of that as I do today. Um, but it struck me as odd when I went off when I to get my PhD at the University of Georgia. And we started thinking more and more about what should an intelligence test be. This topic came up more than once. And one of my professors said, oh yeah, the verbal part of the WISC is really a lot of achievement in it. And I was like, yeah, I get that. But it really struck me when I moved to Northern Arizona University as a professor there, my first teaching job. And I started to listen to my colleagues there in the psychology department talk about evaluating Native American students and how they get low scores on the verbal tests and higher scores on the so-called nonverbal tests. And that's because they're 
left brains weren't as developed as their right brains. And I remember thinking that's the stupidest damn thing I haven't heard. <laughs> they don't speak English very well. And what do you expect? It would be like my grandfather who spoke hardly any English giving him a, a, the same IQ sure. test. But it really struck me when we actually went into the reservation in the Havasupai region of Northern Arizona. And I tested a young lady and sure enough, she got like a first percentile 50 something score on the verbal stuff and an average score on the nonverbal stuff. And in my report in 1982, I wrote, this is not a reasonable measure of intelligence for this student because she doesn't have the knowledge in English to answer the questions. Not only answer the questions based upon the content of the question, but understand the directions right. and articulate it as well. Yeah, and that, and that really relates to what our audience is thinking about, which is students who are learning English. And just to kind of to kind of recap what you said, I, I really love that story because um, I, most of us that are listening, myself included, can relate to having kind of a gut feeling about something as an educator um, and saying, wait a minute, this is this doesn't seem right. Um, the great thing about your story, though, is that you you took that gut feeling and ran with it and did the research and you confirmed that that gut feeling was right. But now you have lots of research and obviously a tremendous amount of experience to to back that up, which I think is 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 great. And, you know, so, so your position is that uh, intelligence tests should measure how well a person can think to answer the questions on the test. But they don't do that very well right now. Could you explain that uh, a little bit further than you did earlier? Sure. So um, most people don't, well, let me, let me back up for a second. The general population, right? People talk about intelligence all the time. And they talk about intelligence tests all the time. Even people have never given one. And when you give an intelligence test, like a traditional intelligence test has a vocabulary subtest. Subtests mean there's usually about 10 to 12 little tests that make up the big test. Think about that for a second. Why should you decide how smart someone is based upon how many words they can define? And don't you learn that in school? And don't you learn vocabulary by reading? And if you don't read very well, you don't get a lot of words. And there's also arithmetic tests on intelligence tests, arithmetic word problems. And don't you learn that in school? Mm -hmm. And why would you have questions that is so clearly dependent upon educational opportunity if you want to measure intelligence? You know, like, does that mean you don't have a good understanding of what intelligence is? And usually what people say, if they argue against what I'm proposing, is they say, well, we know that the verbal tests have excellent validity because they correlate really highly with their achievement mm -hmm. tests. And I say, well, of course, it's the same information. Right. You're asking it twice and you're calling it, in one case, you're calling it intelligence. In the other case, you're calling it achievement. And perhaps one of the 
worst examples or the I don't ever what I never know whether to say it's the worst example or the best <laughs> example of this is there's an article in one of the recent uh, gifted child quarterly journals where two very well-known authors are arguing that this SAT is an excellent measure of intelligence and I find that completely Unre certainly doesn't bode well for me in high school. <laughs> no, nor me, Steve. Yeah. Right. So, so what's the impact of, of all this, you know, using intelligence tests that measure thinking in a way that's confounded by knowledge? And, and especially, like, do, we, do, we, do we find the same in gifted and talented students? Yeah, so here's really the, the, uh, the really interesting and sad um, bit of information that's important to consider. If you look in the literature, oftentimes people have written, well, blacks are underrepresented by 50%, Hispanics by 45%, natives, and, and so on. Um, I started thinking about those percentages and thought, how many people, how many individual students does that represent? And so I went to all the census data, you know, got all the data, the number of students in public school today, the number of students by race and ethnicity who are in gifted. And I just did some simple math. Okay, if there's X number of black kids in the US and we use a 92nd percentile, meaning the top 8%, how many of those students are there? And then compared that to how many black students are actually in gifted because all these data are available. I did all the math and I found out that about in public education today, K to 12, there's a bit more than 800,000 black, Hispanic, Native Americans and students of mixed races in our public schools today who are smart enough to be in gifted, but weren't. But that's not the whole story because about 40% of school districts don't even look for gifted yeah. kids. So if you add that, that other 40% in, the number goes up to a million and wow. a quarter. Just think about that for a second. A million and a quarter really beautifully smart people out there in our public schools that have been unappreciated, feel alienated, feel like no one sees who they really are. That's just, a, that's just a sin. And we can do better. Yeah, it sounds like we can. I mean, it's, it, those numbers are, are astronomical. And like you said, it's, it sounds like just having the data, you could do some simple math. And it's hard to argue that that's uh, against those numbers, given what you just, what you just talked about. Um, it, it seems like, based on what I know, which is very little, obviously, compared to, to, to what you know, which is why we're, we have you on today. But it seems like um, we keep sort of doing the same thing and getting the same results when it comes to equitable identification of, of all gifted students, particularly with the populations you just mentioned. And the results aren't, aren't really great. 
Um, but we haven't seen, it seems like a widespread change. And we're going to get to that a little bit with the work you're doing, but what are the obstacles? And you just mentioned some, but what are, what are the 40% of schools, not even, for example, uh, trying to find out who these students are, but what are the obstacles that are causing that? And how would you go about, or how are you trying to go about dismantling them at this point? Okay, obviously this is a complex problem. Um, there are historical dimensions and there are current dimensions. And I'll try to um, put them all in place Great. here. Maybe I should think chronologically. <laughs> so, let, you know, um, let's go back a hundred years when Lewis Terman created the Stanford Binet. You might know Lewis Terman is actually often described as a father of gifted ed. But a lot of people don't know that he was extraordinarily racist and promoted eugenics and separation of people. And you know, in that time period, the notion was people who weren't smart should not be allowed to procreate and they were sterilized. And, all kinds of horrible things were done with people because of the thought of people like Terman and many others at that time period who advocated for, which really became, you know, a, a horrible time in our evolution of us as humans, where we were saying these groups of people are not smart enough, and so we should stop them from reproducing so that humans get smarter. I mean, that was the basic idea. Um, this is a really terrible yeah. idea. So if you think about Terman as being, you know, so-called the father of gifted, and now you, you know, you come to today and you ask the question, well, how much influence did Terman really have? Well, actually quite a lot because the work that was done in the early 1900s to develop intelligence tests is still the dominant way that intelligence is measured. So we had in the Turin, we had the Army Alpha and the Army Beta developed in 1917 by the US military. Wetzler built his tests on the Alpha and the, and the Beta. So we had the Alpha, the Beta, the B'nai. And then from those, we got the Olsat and the Kogat. Kogak being the most widely used test to identify gifted children. The, the Wechsler scales being the second most, my Nagliari nonverbal test being the third and the most different yep. from those. But these tests have dominated our, our understanding and our view of what intelligence is. And people don't understand that the content of the tests create a problem of equity. And I'm gonna get really esoteric here for a minute, but it's really That's okay, important. go for it. Um, people say to me, and I've heard colleagues of mine, um, I should add colleagues that I don't agree with uh, <laughs> of mine say, well, we can use tests like the WISC to identify gifted kids because it's not biased. And I say, well, um, I understand that that's 
a reasonable statement when we look at the inner workings of a test, we can see that they don't have test bias, but that's not the whole story. If you look at the standards for educational and psychological tests, it makes very clear that test bias is one piece of the puzzle, but test equity is the other, and I would argue the more important, because test equity is about the content of the questions. And the standards explicitly state that even if a test does not show test bias, it could fail the equity portion of the equation if this, the content of the tests demands knowledge which individuals may not have had the opportunity to mm -hmm. learn. And this is really the key. And it's actually not something new. In, Rudolf, in 1923, Rudolf Pintner wrote in his book, a good intelligence test must, avo must avoid anything that is commonly learned. Wow. And he goes on to say this rests on the differentiation between intelligence and knowledge. And I like to remind people that a good intelligence test must measure thinking in a way that's not confounded by knowing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's probably what, I mean, I think that there's, you talked to you walked us through the history and I, which I appreciate and that history resonates. And what I was thinking the whole time you were talking about that, and I'm sure many educators were as well, it's just the educational system in general. And we won't go down that road because it will take a long time, but sort of the industrial version of why we created schools and the inequity associated with that, it seems very, very similar. And those relics um, and the kind of, this is how we've always done things. This is how we're going to continue to do it. And the difficult difficulty making change, even in a time where we've had COVID and we've had to radically change the way we educate uh, students, you know, a fear that I have, and I'm sure many of my colleagues have, is that we're just going to go back to the way it was because it's easiest. I mean, is that, are, you, it seems like you described kind of that happening in this world of, of testing um, and this sort of uh, testing for knowledge rather than intelligence. Am I, is it fair to say that that's still kind of like the way people are thinking about it? It's the easier way to do it. It's how we've always done it. So we're going to continue. I know I'm simplifying it a lot, but for the average person in a school, and we're going to get to your test and talking about how, you know, students or how schools can kind of go about using them. Is that accurate or am I way overgeneralizing? No, I think you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head, so to speak. Oftentimes teachers will say to me, well, the student doesn't fit our curriculum. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a problem one. right there. Yeah, I had a teacher one time say to me, well, I don't care if he has 140 IQ, he doesn't read well and I'm not a reading a remedial reading teacher. Yeah. And I, I thought to myself, well, do you really want to ignore a really smart boy or girl because they're not reading well? Wouldn't it be a, 
wouldn't it be a pleasure to teach a really smart kid how to read? Sure. <laughs> it, 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 that teacher, as somebody who's taught for 17 years, can then argue probably pretty successfully that I don't have the training to be able to do that. We hear all that frequently with, with English learners. And so it becomes, it's a systemic issue, right? Where that one particular teacher can absolutely make that argument. I'm certainly not saying that that's the right argument to make at all. Um, but we need to figure out how to change the system so that teachers like that are supported to do what they want to do. And I, I have to think that most teachers are going to, as you just said, want to support and nurture and help a student who has a tremendous amount of potential. And that, that's where I want to get to kind of your, your work, because I think it's beginning to hopefully try to solve this problem. Um, and I'm going to kind of use a quote here just so I make sure I say it the right way. So I'm going to look at my other screen, but you, you've created tasks that, quote, were carefully designed to measure thinking in a way that does not require academic knowledge. We've talked about that already today. The tests allow students to solve problems regardless of the language they speak and significantly reduce the amount of formal knowledge required. So tests measure how well students think rather than what students know. And you've kind of outlined that. I think a lot of people who are listening to this interview just kind of perked up and would be really excited to hear more about this and how they can actually use these tests specifically with, with English learners. But let's start by talking about how you went about designing the tests in this way so that they work the way that they should. Okay, um, I'm gonna uh, answer this question by telling you a little bit about my own trajectory that brought us to this place. So um, I mentioned to you that in the early 80s, when I was actually doing these assessments, that it, it was clear to me that we had a problem. So in 85, I published my first test, which is considered, which was called a nonverbal test, it means you measure intelligence by diagrams and such. Um, over the years after that, I developed other tests that were described as nonverbal and people would say to me, well, okay, so you were able to show us with a nonverbal test that you could find equal percentage of black, white and Hispanic and ELL kids uh, for gifted, but what about the verbal and what about the quantitative? And I tried to explain to them that a nonverbal test doesn't measure nonverbal intelligence and that there's no such thing as nonverbal intelligence. Nonverbal is the description of the content of the test, not the kind of mm -hmm. thinking. But still, people persisted. And they asked, what about the verbal? What about the quantitative? So I got together with two extraordinary colleagues of mine in the gifted world, Dr. Dina Uyes and Dr. Kim Lansdowne. And I said to them, I have some ideas about how we can go beyond the nonverbal test to measure intelligence with a verbal test that can be solved regardless of the language that the student speaks and a quantitative test that could be solved that does not require math, but just some simple, simple reasoning with little numbers, so to speak. And we did it. So and I'll explain to you how I'll explain to you how. Can I pause for just a sec before you explain? Because yeah, yeah. I'm curious about this. So, in some ways, you were catering to the demands of the people that you disagreed with um, in order to do this. But, you know, that's probably something that you have to do in order to work in a system which has limitations. So, you kind of yielded a little bit. And I'm interested to see, and I'm sure you're going to get into this, kind of what you learned by, by doing that. 
Yeah, well, I learned a long time ago that the easiest way to move the most people is the baby step, not yeah, the big yeah, step. Yeah. <laughs> right? So um, if I can move the field of gifted, which I actually have already done with my nonverbal test, move the field of gifted towards those kids, but I can do it even more, then I'm right. going to do it. Would I like to go a giant step? Yes. But reality reality doesn't really permit that at this time. But even a, even a baby step can have a big impact on those 1.25 million yeah, kids, sure. right? So, uh, yeah. And I did mention to you that my nonverbal test is the third most widely mm -hmm. used measure to identify gifted kids. So imagine it, with these new tests, if we can go to number one, Imagine all those kids that we're going to find now. It'd yeah, be awesome. For sure. Um, and uh, you've mentioned, and that was the third, which is amazing and great. Um, you've created many, many different tests um, for the purpose of identifying gifted and talented English learners. And for the purpose of kind of the people listening to this podcast, what, which ones, one or ones are you most excited about in terms of that potential? The, the three tests that we, do, that we developed, Dana, Kim, and I. So let me tell you what the verbal test looks like. And of course, we could show this if we were visual, but it's easy to And explain. we'll link to it so people can see and read about it as well. Okay. So um, just imagine that on a screen are six pictures. A picture of a banana, a picture of a pear, a picture of an orange, a peach, and an apple and a chair, which one doesn't go with the others? Obviously, we have five pieces of fruit or things that you eat, or you, know, you, could, you could say they're alive and the chair isn't, right? It's a lot of things you could say about it, but basically it's a verbal concept of fruit. So what we do is we show the student an animated, like a little animated cartoon of a student sitting in front of a computer. And when the animation plays, a thought bubble comes up over this, the character in the, in the, on the animation. And the thought bubble has the six images and then the five come together. And the one that's the answer, the chair kind of pulsates and then the thought bubble goes away and then you watch the animated character move the mouse and select the correct answer. So what did we just do? We took the oral directions mm -hmm. out, of the, out of the administration and we don't require the student to explain verbally. And we've given them a question that Anybody can answer regardless of where you come from in the world, honestly, right? Everybody knows that these are fruit and the chair is not a piece of fruit. So that's a verbal concept test. It's actually based on a neuropsychological um, description of language that is included in Luria's book, Language and Cognition, which I had been thinking about for about a decade before we yeah, did this yeah. test. I really love the, the paradigm and it works beautifully. So we measure general ability using this kind of a verbal test. Now, 
We also have a nonverbal test, which is um, best described, again, just uh, orally. Imagine there, uh, there's a two by two and there's a, a blue circle on the top left, a yellow circle on the top right. On the bottom left is a blue square and a question mark. So there's an analogy that's mm -hmm. being uh, built there. It's, it would be just like a uh, boy is the man is girl is the question mark. Um, but we use just shapes and that's my nonverbal test. And it's incredibly, incredibly valid and helpful in this environment. And then the quantitative test, what we do is in the simplest version of it, it's just a simple numerical sequence, like a one, three, five, seven question mm -hmm. mark. Now, um, we would be very clear to have simple quantitative reasoning tests, but nothing that demands the kind of knowledge that's taught in math. And that's the yep, distinction. Yep. Yep. So we now we have these three tests. They all measure general ability. And by general ability, I mean the students' ability to think about how things are interrelated, whether it's words, whether it's numbers, or whether it's just diagrams. That's the essence of a general ability test. Yeah, you know, I keep thinking about how these tests <clears throat> dovetail nicely into what a good teacher and perhaps one that is uh, a little bit more knowledgeable on on what gifted and talented students bring to the table and what they look like in a classroom, particularly if they're English learners. But if you think about combining a test like this with those observations, which we actually had Marcy Voss uh, talk with us about recently, who's also a, an expert in gifted and talented. She was actually quoted in the same article that you were in the 74s, where I found both of you. And I'm thinking now about the connections between a test that you're talking about and the observations that a teacher is making uh, with their students, trying to figure out what they need and, and what services they can provide them to help them excel. The other thing I'm thinking about here is, you know, you've, you've said this a, a lot of times now today, and I think it's really, really important. It's not about that knowledge, the academic knowledge, but how these students think. And there's a lot more attention being given now, I think rightly so, and importantly so, to the idea of metacognition, learning, you know, how, how students think so that they can, so you can support them in that way. Um, and then like, how's that all related to language ability? I, I just, just kind of think swirling around here in terms of, um, of how these can all uh, uh, work together. And, you know, I, it, it kind of comes down to this, like one of the quotes in the article that, that, that you said was, there's no doubt in my mind that we will find more children who do not speak English doing well in these tests, which begs the question and kind of like to wrap up everything I just said, which may have sounded very disparate. Um, if, if, this, if these tests do what you say they can do a lot, which I have no doubt that they can, along with the observations of teachers, how do we go about getting them in the hands of educators who can use them effectively. I mean, how widely are they being used now? Um, and how can teachers learn more about using them? We're not teachers, administrators, or anybody who's working with these, these students. Okay, so a um, couple of things. 
first of all, as I said, my, my nonverbal test is the third most widely used test of identifying gifted children. With the new test that I just described, I think there's no doubt that we'll be at least that effective and I think actually much more effective than that. And so for me, um, it's, it's gonna take a little bit of time to get, you know, get the word out. And that's why it's important to do what we're doing today. Um, we are about to publish our first book on the new test, which will come out on October 4th, called Understanding and Using the Nagliari General Ability Tests, a Call for Equity and Gifted Education. And the three tests are actually being used now in a limited, uh, a limited release. And people are very, very excited about them. And everything that we are hearing is that it's working just fine and everyone's really eager for the final, um, final launch of the product. Good. So it's happening. And I think it's going to make a big, big impact on the field. That's amazing. And I'm sure it's something that you're quite proud of. I mean, this is your life's work, going back to that original anecdote that, that we talked about, that gut feeling, something's wrong here. What a great story. I mean, it's just amazing that you've been able to kind of take that moment and craft this, this journey. Um, and so, so, so we'll link to the book and all the other resources that you have as well. I do, I don't want to leave this conversation though, without talking about, um, next steps. So like if these tests are utilized widely and they help identify a more diverse pool of gifted students, which I have no doubt that they will. And clearly you don't have any doubt that they will either, which is more important in my opinion. What do you see as the next step? for educating students who may otherwise have very well slipped off the radar? Well, this is going to demand a shift in the way in which gifted educators teach these students. Sooner the better, of course, as always, but curricula need to be changed Teachers need to understand that it can be done. So for example, my co-author on the verbal test, Dina Bouyes, has for many years explained in very clear terms exactly how a teacher can work with these students on a day-to-day -day basis, how to teach them. She has a technique that's called cluster grouping, um, differentiated instruction. There's a lot of ways of making this happen. And I, I think the first step is for the field of gifted. And, and this is really at the teacher level to just say, okay, we're in a, a growth spurt right mm -hmm. now. Let's make it so. And that means, you know, we, we did it with COVID. We could do it going forward as and not just do the same old thing that we've done in the past, but say, okay, let's embrace these smart students. Let's help them really excel. 
let's make gifted represent the US population. And it can be done. We can, we can find them. And then it's up to districts, you know, administrators and the educational you know, environment as a whole to say, okay, we're on board with this equity. We want to do it. Yeah, and I think it's very well said, and we'll link uh, as well to the other episode that I mentioned with, with Marcy Buss, because she actually talks a lot about what teachers, specifically teachers of English learners can do. It's kind of like a good sort of se uh, sequel to this to this episode. How do you identify and what can you use? What are the tools you can use to identify these students? And the next episode, obviously, what can you do? Not only as somebody who is sort of uh, running um, these, these gifted programs, but also just a teacher in the field who needs to have the ability to identify these students in a variety of different ways. Uh, yeah, and by the way, Steve, our, our book, Understanding and Using the Nagliero General Ability Test, is mostly about what the teachers great. should do. It's, it's really not as much about the test. I, I think maybe less than a quarter of the content of the book is about the tests, and it's really about why it should be used, how it should be used, and the instructional implications, how the, the teachers um, should go about working with these individuals, how the administrators should interface with parents and everybody else to make it work. It's really, it's really not about the test. It's really about how we can achieve this goal, which is why I'm excited. Yeah, excellent. That's good context. And it sounds like you have a great group of uh, fo folks who have contributed to that, who are able to contribute all that knowledge, which is wonderful. And it does seem like this is, I mean, I've learned a lot over the last couple of months just in researching for these interviews um, about this. And I didn't know much about it as a, as a teacher. I kind of looked at it as this sort of separate world and that's not what it is at all. Um, and so I'm really grateful to have had you on and to kind of explore this topic a little bit more. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And um, that is, uh, if there's a book, or if we've already talked about the book that, that you have coming out, which we'll, again, we'll link to, and we'll link to lots of other resources as well. But is there a book or a film or any other resource that's had um, kind of an important influence on you, either personally or professionally, that you'd like to recommend to listeners? Well, if you think about what I've been doing my whole career, it's pretty much going against um, what everyone thinks is true, <laughs> <laughs> right? right? So, um, and that that has its its downfalls. Um, my approach has been always: here's my vision, here's my research. You know, so the many of the three hundred publications I have is all about equitable assessment. And, and I'm always publishing this piece of evidence that shows this is correct and this piece that shows that's correct and so on and so forth. Um, but one of, the, one of the things that I often reflect on as I've done this over the many years is a book that I read um, by James Reston entitled Galileo, who as we know, got a little bit of pushback <laughs> from some people, <laughs> right? And um, I remember reading Reston's book and he goes into quite a lot of detail about what it was like for Galileo at the university and you know, in society and with the church and on and on and on. And um, sometimes I feel like 
you know, you're, um, um, you know, like a Don Quixote, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and um, I'm just not willing to give up. I mean, I retired from the university 12 years ago. I'm still doing this stuff because at this point I can only, I, I only have to do what, what I choose yeah. to yeah. do, <laughs> right? Um, and I choose to do this work because for me, I know it's gonna impact children not only in the U.S., but it'll, we have people from other parts of the world already asking us how we, they can use these new tests in these other countries. So I know this is going to have tremendous impact, and you know, ultimately, that's that's what I've wanted to do. I've, I I go back to my own history. You mentioned, you know, about our SAT scores maybe aren't the greatest, but or GRE for that know, matter. <laughs> or GRE. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something that might surprise you. Um, when I interviewed for a PhD program at a university near where I lived in New York, I was told by the director of the school psychology program that when they looked at my GRE scores, which they used as a measure of intelligence, that they didn't think I was smart oh enough to get a PhD. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing is I saw that person at every single <laughs> National Association of School Psychologists conference that I spoke at literally since 1978. I've spoken at every single one of them. And I was often tempted to say, remember me? Isn't that the song that goes, remember me? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, how do you like me now? Whatever that was, you know. But anyway, you know, the people, People have misconceptions about what intelligence is, and it's all about this differentiation of thinking versus knowing. Right. Well, I mean, piggybacking on what you said a few minutes ago, I mean, your dedication to this work um, and your passion for this work, I'm glad that you haven't stopped. Um, I would encourage you to keep doing what you choose to do. But if it's this that you choose to do, I think it benefits all of us. So um, I hope that you don't stop. It's really, really amazing and inspirational work and obviously grounded in um in a passion for what you do. Um, we've talked about the book. I'll link to your website, but what's the best way for people to learn about the work you're doing so, so they can um, learn more? Well, I think the best way is to go to my website, the website that we have created explicitly for the new test called nagliarigiftedtests.com. Um, we have videos, we have copies of our presentations. And this is a website where Dina and Kim and I have put all our information. You can also contact us directly. I get email all the time from people, people who've used my tests and say, I have this question or that. And I, I'm always happy to interact and talk to them. Oftentimes it leads to, hey, let's have a Zoom together and chat, or will you come to my, my school district and help? And Dina, and Kim, they go to school districts and actually work with people one-on-one -on -one to all the nitty gritty with the teachers. What do you do with the kids that we found? So yeah, be in touch with us. We're, we're available. Well, that's how this whole thing started, by the way. I just reached out and you were available and, uh, and it took a little while, but we finally did it. And I'm, and I'm glad we did. Yeah. So uh, with that, Dr. Jack Neglieri, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for all of the work you do. And thanks for joining us to tell this really important story. It's really my pleasure, Steve, and I look forward to seeing you again. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.